The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media and technology, entrepreneurs, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I do think that some of these journalists believe that they can construct alternate journalistic careers for themselves if something at the LA Times or the Houston Chronicle or NBC News goes south. But some of it, I think, is more organic than that and less um, conscious than that. And just this doesn't feel right to me. You know, I think that my lived experience matters. This week, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik on TV news in the era of January 6th investigations. Doubling down versus doubling back. Twitter spats. The intergenerational fault lines within mastheads. Exposed for the world to see. It almost makes you nostalgic for the days of Watergate hearings on a fuzzy black and white zenith. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from his deluxe home studio in Montclair, New Jersey, while his uh, dog Watson tries to invade the interview, is David Folkenflik, NPR media correspondent, author of Murdoch's World. David has been on the show, I believe, four times already, which makes you eligible, sir, for either a Happy Meal voucher or a lifetime subscription to CNN+. Plus. How are you? Fine. Well, how are you? Given the enduring value of the latter, I guess uh, I should probably go with the Happy Meal. We have a lot to get to, and you're covering the January 6th hearings, which, after all, I mean, this is a media story. I think back to Kellyanne Conway's famous uh, description of alternative facts. It's a phrase that the U.S. counselor to then-president-elect Donald Trump used in 2017, in which she defended then-White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's statement about the attendance numbers of Donald Trump's inauguration. And it turned out to be a fateful phrase because— you can bend all sorts of facts around, including and especially what transpired on January 6th, as evidenced by your coverage of, say, Fox News versus what the other networks are saying. Yeah, you th- think back to alternative facts right now. Uh, we're struggling with alternative history. Uh, you know, former President Trump and his supporters just denying what appears to be a fairly substantive case being laid out uh, in some ways surprisingly, uh, by this House Select Committee. I mean, it's a committee that does have bipartisan membership, and yet it is not with the blessing of the leadership of both parties. You know, Tucker Carlson is accused of being a a show trial. Other critics have said it was going to be show business because the committee hired former ABC News president James Goldston as a consultant to help shape what it presented to the world. But I think what they've actually done is use TV news techniques to offer a surprisingly tangible and easy to understand a story of what's happening using each day of hearings as an individual chapter in a larger tale, a larger saga 
about uh, not just the violent protest that became an insurrection on January 6th, but a more conscious effort by figures within those rioters to lead a blocking of the constitutional processes by which you know our election would be certified and validated. And that Trump had quite intentionally egged that on and that he had egged on a concurrent and concomitant legal effort to block the certification in the U.S. Senate. And that there was both a you know, sort of muscle and legal manpower being devoted to this at the behest of the president and in some ways at the instincts of his supporters. And that the committee is, you know, marshalling multimedia documentary evidence to present to the world in a fairly focused way. And as a former congressional reporter, I can tell you a fairly surprising way in that you've seen a sublimation of congressional egos. Usually you have these round robins of these opening statements, right? And each of the members gets to launch into their own interpretation, their own spin and preen for the hometown press or try to get a viral bite. And they're just not doing that. They're assigning a different uh, lawmaker to lead uh, the hearings each day in a way to keep the focus on the story they're trying to tell and the elements they're trying to tease out. And it's powerful. And even as the president's allies and uh, defenders and uh, deflectors uh, are minimizing the importance of what's happening here. It has a power. And part of the way you know that is President Trump, former President Trump himself, has now taken uh, issue with the decision by House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to, uh, to boycott uh, this panel. And the interesting thing to me is, so who is being convinced in this? I'm looking at the numbers that came out, uh, I guess, from uh, Nielsen Nielsen numbers, Fox News averaged 1.52 million total viewers during the month of April. That was up 25% versus the same period in 2021. MSNBC at less than 700,000. CNN at less than 600,000. And if you look at primetime, Fox News has an average of 2.4 million viewers. MSNBC, 1.12 million. CNN, 694,000. This seems to be a last bright spot kind of in the otherwise atrophying world of vertical TV news. And they have a significant mind share of kind of older, white, Republican-leaning voters. Look, Fox's model is a loyalty model. It is both uh, has most likely the people who watch Pillar to Post on the day and keep uh, keep tuned in to Fox. And it has the biggest audiences. And it does that by feeding the beast. You know, they're under Roger Ailes, uh, Fox was uh, always looking to define what conservative politics looked like, what Republican Party politics would look like, what were the issues, what were the messages, who were the rising candidates. And now there's an effort to hold on to those audiences by anticipating where they're going. After all, you can get in some ways redder meat, or at least you can at times on Newsmax. You certainly can on OAN, uh, you know, a much smaller upstart uh, cable effort, but it's there. Uh, Fox News uh, crafted Fox Nation, a streaming service in order to keep it going. And yet you can even get more extreme stuff, not just at websites like the Gateway Pundit uh, or certain kinds of talk radio shows, but, you know, just QAnon. You can hop on Reddit and 4chan and other places where you can just go down the rabbit hole uh, and just delve into conspiracy theories and right wing or anarchic craziness. And such things aren't existing only on the right, but it is a major feeder into conservative and right-wing politics now that's not symmetrical on the left in terms of influencing the major party. And, you know, you've seen 
uh, Fox News uh, embraced that as it sought to hold off the erosion of its own audiences, right? And to maintain some kind of credibility. You know, you've seen also, you know, Fox attacking uh, CNN and portraying it as being not much different than MSNBC, that is a voice of the left. And you've seen Chris Licht, uh, the new head of CNN, sticking around and trying to say, let's figure out a way that we can shed some of this emoting, some of this personalization of the news, not only being oppositional to Trump in terms of it being a fairly corrupt and administration that was based on denying reality and trying to suppress accountability from the press, but also somehow personally representing that. And you heard that a lot in primetime on Fox and in other parts of the day as well, excuse me, on CNN and other parts of the day as well. And Licht wants to get away from some of the rhetoric that, you know, for example, the idea of calling something the big lie when you're talking about Trump's false and, and fraudulent claims of election fraud in November of 2020. Licht says, you know, that's too neatly consistent with Democratic Party rhetoric. You can call things lies, but you don't have to use the precise labels that uh, Trump's liberal and Democratic critics would slap on him. And you know, in that and a series of other ways, I think Licht is making reasonable and defensible uh, stances, not to neuter CNN's reporting, but to say we need to be based on our reporting and based on the evidence we're marshalling rather than uh, rather than invective and rhetoric. And you've seen CNN hosts try to adhere to that. But, you know, Fox has succeeded by in some ways making it up to its viewers uh, for in November of 2020 being the first TV news outlet to call Arizona for Joe Biden, which made it clear that Donald Trump's uh, hopes of reelection were severely imperiled and were unlikely to be sustained. And in fact, they weren't. Uh, and ever since, Fox has been trying to make it up for them. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to David Falkenflick. He's NPR's media correspondent, author of Murdoch's World. Uh, we're, since we're talking about Fox News and Rupert Murdoch, he is now 91 years old. I haven't seen him quoted publicly in a while. I haven't seen him. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the last thing in Sun Valley, Idaho, or, you know, with the various bro fleeces and the like. His son, who's, I believe, 51 or 52, is now in charge of Fox. And I wonder how this stuff kind of recourses to them financially. I do understand that Fox News is pretty rare and that it's a profit center for the larger conglomerate. And yet we see things that you're covering as well. A Delaware judge on Tuesday rejected a motion by the parent of Fox News to dismiss Dominion Voting Systems $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit over the network's 2020 presidential election coverage. I mean, this can cost them. There's potential liability. Well, and this is the issue. This is the flip side. You know, we can talk about it a bit more later, but Fox News uh, has settled a lawsuit in the case of the parents of Seth Rich, who was a young Democratic staffer, 27-year-old, who was killed and uh, about whom Fox figures, uh, you know, puffed up conspiracy theories claiming somehow that uh, he had leaked thousands of emails uh, to WikiLeaks from the Democratic uh, Party, thus hurting Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016, and that that may have been what drove his death, which has been unsolved by police in Washington, D.C. But that experience of paying millions of dollars to settle a lawsuit by that dead young man's parents didn't inhibit or shame Fox uh, from embracing 
uh, conspiracy series since. And now there's a much greater risk to them. There's a $1.6 billion with a B billion dollar defamation lawsuit over claims made by f- figures on Fox, including Fox stars about Dominion, which is a major uh, voting technology firm. There's another over $2 billion lawsuit filed by Smartmatic voting technology company. And just to give you how ridiculous the idea that Smartmatic was involved in widespread fraud in the 2020 race, as far as can be discerned, Smartmatic was only involved in Los Angeles County. I mean, that is a rarity. Cable TV, you know, cord cutting is running amok, but not among this demo. There's a, there's even there's growth in this and you see the advertisers, whether you know, uh, opioid-induced constipation, or uh, whatever, whatever these target demos hit for later people. That's that's a rare corner of growth on the cable news dial. Yeah, exactly. You know, a a, a jurisdiction that was going to go hard for Joe Biden anyway, and it didn't play any other appreciable role in the 2020 electoral count. And so, you know, the fact that people were making false claims about this company on the nation's most watched cable news channel. Uh, you know, claims made by guests given prominent time, often unchecked and generally just amplified by Fox figures is is damaging. You're seeing, you know, lawsuits totaling in well over three billion dollars in, in terms of possible price tag against Fox News. And these are ones that are going to be vigorously fought by Fox. Fox says, it's, look, it's just covering statements being made by, you know, eminently newsworthy figures about issues of interest to the public. Right. But the implications are far graver here. And the question is whether there is any check on hyperbole, even as, uh, as you say. But haven't they intimated in the past that this stuff was not journalistic, that it's opinion, that it's almost borderline entertainment? Wasn't that kind of what they projected? With a defense of Tucker Carlson, that somehow these are not really to be believed. That is a show predicated on hyperbole and you're not supposed to believe the stuff Uh, presented being factual, even though sometimes it's presented that way. I mean, let's be clear. Tucker Carlson was sued by a former girlfriend uh, of Donald Trump before he reached the presidency, uh, uh, Karen McDougal, a former Playboy model, because he had said that it was literally a fact that she had, and for that matter, a pornographic uh, actress uh, who goes under the stage name of Stormy Daniels, had extorted money, blackmailed Donald Trump. Actually, Donald Trump through his lawyer, uh, Michael Cohn, and through uh, the National Enquirer in this bizarre series of events, reached out to the women and bought the rights to their stories, paid them off to as hush money. It wasn't that the women said, I'm suing you or I'm blackmailing you and I'm threatening you. It's that they said, we want to make sure this story doesn't get out. And they hushed them and suppressed their stories. And what Tar- Carlson alleged was in stark... Uh, contradiction of the facts as we know them. So, you know, Fox is able to push it right up into the line until it becomes too painful to avoid. And then typically what Rupert Murdoch has done in his tabloids when they got into trouble or Fox for that matter is to cauterize the wounds when necessary. You sort of cut off uh, attachments to the scandal. For example, the day after one of the big suits was filed, Lou Dobbs was announced. He was pushed out of the network, leaving the network. The network said, well, this was long planned after the 2020 election. Uh, Nobody that I've spoken to other than officials at Fox uh, believe that, including people within Fox itself. You know, often chronology is destiny. If this was planned as part of the election, changes after the election, one might have expected it to be announced before that lawsuit was, but you never know. So 
you know, Fox is in some grave financial peril. This is a ton of money. Uh, judges allowed lawsuits to proceed. And, you know, the place at which this stuff gets sticky is when figures within Fox have to testify and provide evidence. And Fox has typically tried to settle things, to find a way to settle things before that's been done because they don't want evidence to be given to the public of, you know, how the sausage actually gets made over there. Its profitability, however, depends on retaining the loyalty, retaining the attention, retaining the connection with its core viewers, which happens to fairly neatly overlap with Trump's core voters. And therefore, this is a network that is wrestling with how much it can distance itself from Trump or Trumpism and what best to do. And so what I don't what I don't understand is flirting, flirting with that as opposed to kind of staving it off or having a new company policy to say, look, we can have a minimal amount of provocation and maintain profit. You know, it's like titrating just the perfect amount of mythology and journalistic fact. And we can maintain our margins versus always flirting with these massive settlements. You could be talking about the the late Roger Ailes and the the, the sexual abuse culture and, and, and uh you know, Bill O'Reilly and everybody, it seems like settle first and ask questions later. Yeah, Fox has always been uh, the kind of place that is, uh, you know, it, it's got a process for how it deals with scandal. It denies, it rejects, it counterpunches when it has to. It tends to dump off uh, lower level figures in its newspapers or its uh uh, or at Fox News, and then it will go up the chain when it needs to. You know, for the longest time, they defended Bill O'Reilly until it was untenable, and then they dumped him, pumped up uh, Tucker Carlson, who ultimately became, if anything, just as popular, if not more so. You know, they didn't change the way things operated there until the level of pain or the level of scrutiny was too great, and until the level of intrusion into how they operated was too stark. You know, Fox wants to maintain. Uh, as best it can, a semblance and veneer of respectability, even as it has this hard edge and this uh, kind of, what shall I say, cowboy ethos in uh, terms of its relationship to fact and truth uh, on the opinion side and even at times in the news stories. You know, one of the things that's amazing in all this is not only are its news programs controlling fewer of the most watched hours of the day than than before, uh, and not only do you see sort of a conservative bent in choices of stories and themes and tone in news side? You're also seeing news figures, Harris Faulkner to some extent, Maria Bartiromo to a great extent, who are themselves amplifying some of the craziest things that are landing Fox in trouble today. You know, Harris Faulkner perhaps a bit less so, but she has this show that's kind of a what's called a hybrid of an opinion show and a news show. She's considered a news anchor, but man, the lines... It's not that they're blurry. It's that at times they're impossible to discern. And people inside Fox tell me that all the time. I mean, I think they just paid. I saw they paid Melissa Francis $15 million, someone I used to do CNBC with who left the network. And I mean, these are these are enormous sums. Yeah. The amazing thing about Melissa Francis is, uh, you know, this $15 million and she is not accusing as part of this that she was sexually harassed or assaulted in the way that so many of her female colleagues who left earlier were. Melissa Francis, you know, former, you know, you knew her from CNBC, former uh, financial reporter before she became a Fox host. Uh, and uh, she did the math. 
She did the numbers in her allegations to, you know, one of these agencies in New York that monitors such issues as well as to officials within Fox is that women who had hosting roles at Fox were routinely paid significantly less than their male counterparts. And she accounted for what time of day it was, what the ratings were, whether or not there were co-hosts or you were having hosting a show solo. No matter how you sliced it, women came in significantly less. And she alleged that Diane Brandy, who had been Fox News's top lawyer uh, and had been sort of iced for a while when the scandals hit, but then came back to handle certain kinds of contract negotiations. You know, Francis alleges that Brandy told her you need to grow up and think differently about this uh, because uh, this is just the way the world works. You know, Fox says that Francis's claims are untrue uh, and that, uh, you know, her accusations of what Brandy said are meritless. But being paid 15 million bucks, as you say, that's an enormous amount of money, even for Fox News, you know, and they would pay that very grudgingly. So they are, again, trying to shut down. Uh, any kind of lawsuit or greater governmental inquiry that could open up uh, their behavior to scrutiny, particularly in the years since Roger Ailes left. He left in the summer of 2016. They say that under the new CEO, Suzanne Scott, the culture has been changed. Uh, human resources policies and practices have changed, that there have been a whole slew of women who have been elevated in executive roles and hosting roles and given their own shows and their own opportunities. You know, Melissa Francis is arguing otherwise. Yeah, you've covered that. Refresh our refresh our memory on Seth Rich. I mean, this is a tragic footnote in kind of the partisan conspiratorial kind of name calling wars that we saw peak during the Trump administration. Yeah, we can come back to Seth Rich. Uh, you know, this was I think there's a through line. You know, you shouldn't think of Seth Rich as as, as a footnote, but as in some ways the opening salvo to what the Trump years would look like. Uh, for Fox and for Trump world itself. You know, Rich's death, this young man's death was taken and used by the president's allies on Fox within days, used by the president's allies over at WikiLeaks, Julian Assange intimating that Rich may have been a source for them, although never quite confirming it and ultimately backing away from that. The idea that he was some sort of renegade within the DNC who was a Bernie Sanders supporter who was heartbroken by what he saw in favor of Hillary Clinton. You know, these emails that were leaked really threw the DNC off in the summer of 2016 and threw uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign off kilter in a way that she never fully recovered from. And the idea that Seth Rich's death was part of that, you know, became part of Republican lore. Trump pushed the idea from the campaign trail. And then you had this Fox unpaid commentator, Ed Butowski, who spoke a lot on financial issues, engineer from behind the scenes, not only the kind of speculation that Eric Bowling and uh, Newt Gingrich and Sean Hannity and others engaged in on Fox, but what he arranged was actual story done by a supposed investigative reporter, Malia Zimmerman, that alleged that there was proof in law enforcement sources uh, affirming to her that Rich had leaked these emails and that there was questions of whether there was Democratic Party links to the the, the murder of him. And uh, it wasn't true. And Fox had to retract the story. But Fox never apologized. Fox never explained to the Rich family publicly or to the viewing public that, you know, many of people rely on Fox for their news as to what happened, what went wrong. You know, journalistic protocol tends to d dictate that if you really screw up, you've got to keep faith because what we have to build on is credibility. And if you shatter that by being not credible and you don't 
come clean and say, look, this is how we messed up and this is how we'll do better, that credibility tends to wither. Well, Fox is, in a sense, making the case that credibility isn't the most important thing or that their credibility is predicated on something other than factual, fair reporting and transparency, you know, that it's predicated on sort of uh, what jersey you're wearing and uh, which side you rally. And while Fox has, you know, takes great exception to some of this, they really have not been accountable. They did pay a private settlement they won't confirm of some millions of dollars to Seth Rich's parents. And they did say they wanted some peace and solace uh, to the that they hope the family achieved that through the benefit of this payment. But I've got to say that, uh, you know, it, it is not the way that a news organization that wants to be taken seriously would would behave. Um, and, uh, you know, you're seeing that now greater consequences as not a, you know, a couple from Omaha who doesn't have the money or the knowledge of how to fight a big corporation is operating. But you've got these companies that are filing billion dollar lawsuits and the same questions will arise. You know, some people did leave Fox as a result of the Seth Rich story. Ed Butowski's ties were cut. A Fox News commentator who served as a supposedly as a detective on that story was was dropped from Fox. Malia Zimmerman ultimately was pushed out of Fox. But uh, the harm lingers. You know, what I will say is that it did shut down discussion of Seth Rich on Fox and through lawsuits from other conspiracy mongers on the internet from lawsuits filed by Seth Rich's brother, Aaron, you know, you saw a lot of that be tamped down on as well. So in a sense, they were able at a grievous personal cost to cut short that conspiracy theorizing after some years and a lot of pain. And, and David, I'm thinking about the same thing, kind of the, the victims in this, the collateral damage, if you will, they call it in a kind of a real politic sense, is this, this uh, uh, campaign volunteer who was vilified and, you know, the weaponization with the Trump administration and the, the echo chamber who testified having gained all this weight, having had severe depression, going into hiding, they're threatening her her family. You think about the Capitol Police who testified, the various uh, people who committed suicide who were on the Capitol Police force. This amplification is significant, kind of coming from those original sins of the Seth Rich case and the targeting of people. And I'm amazed that, uh, you know, again, that these are high-powered $400 an hour law firms that are attached to Fox that that don't kind of call it back in. Tucker Carlson, um, it seems to me, uh, with his Patriot Purge, uh, was putting out there theories and claims that were discredited before he even made them in a three-part series that appeared on uh, Fox Nation, the streaming service. And it's kind of astonishing. And yet, you know, that is the material that will keep people coming back. You know, if you think about it, you know, Fox has become more and more outrageous over the years in its opinion side and in its approach. Uh, and I think they worry that, you know, if they don't offer that hard edge, they will lose people. Excuse me, Carlson is nothing if not exquisitely attuned to the question of whether people are going to keep turning on his show or keep streaming his offerings. Uh, you know, New York Times did a dissection of his career at Fox. And one of the things they pointed out was how closely he monitored things given uh, his shows at MSNBC and CNN that were canceled uh, in earlier incarnations of his career. Uh, so I think that's what's going on. Full disclosure, you're listening to David Folkenflik, NPR media correspondent. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. We are on NPR member station WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great Commonwealth. You can catch us in Asheville, North Carolina, and Northern Virginia, Ventura County, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. 
We're talking to David Folkenflik, NPR's media correspondent. He's been closely covering the January 6th hearings and, 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 and the media's varied involvement in this. David, I'm thinking about the foils to Fox News, namely CNN uh, Network News. Uh, CNN, out of the gate with its new parent company, Warner Discovery, shut down CNN Plus, which was its big, bold streaming venture. It's very much an open question if they can innovate or die, or if the best they have left out of them is just riding uh, smaller and smaller TV, traditional cable TV audiences. Yeah. When you talk about CNN, you know, Warner Discovery, uh, CNN Plus, you know, it's hard to call it a failure because it didn't get out of the gate. They didn't get a chance. So, you know, is it a failed strategy? I don't know. It's a dead strategy. They're not doing that. They want to fold it into part of Warner Discovery as though Warner Discovery streaming, I guess, will be its own cable provider and you'll stream maybe Warner Brothers movies through HBO Max and you'll stream uh, HBO shows through that uh, and you'll have a, you know, a toggle or an icon for CNN uh, and you'll have another, you know, for Discovery Channel stuff. That seems to me where they're going. But this was an effort to try to show that CNN could offer, you know, not just news, but shows that were adjacent to that. Things like Stanley Tucci and Laura Ling and, of course, the late Anthony Bourdain and other shows that might interest folks and, and build up a, an archive of such things. What Bill Weir has done over the years. Well, there's a logical fallacy because it was never given a chance to go out there and see if it could get subscriber lift. But my impression looking at this is that they're not gunning for each other anymore and kind of cannibalizing, you know, target demo from a, a shrinking linear TV audience. But it's the New York Times, which has really gotten its digital subscriber groove that is uh, the one that they're going after that's robust in terms of video, podcast, digital, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what you know, the daily podcast and, and um as a destination where people will pay for the content. Others are under pressure, even traditional cable TV channels, to build a kind of a digital native business that people will pay for. Yeah. You know, in terms of comparing it to the New York Times, I think that's a very close comparison. Uh, Andrew Morse, the former head of CNN's digital offerings, who kind of had overseen CNN Plus and tried to bring it to life, uh, really did tend to point to the New York Times and seeing the millions of English-speaking people in the US, in the UK and Australia and Canada and Europe, uh, across uh, part, you know, uh, certain kinds of population centers in Latin America, uh, the Middle East and Asia, no doubt Africa as well. They saw an international audience sort of binding them and it because it was streaming, making it possible to reach these folks with things that both were offering news coverage, but also offering news discussion and offering kind of lifestyle magazine uh, things along with documentaries and and trading on a name that worldwide does have a real uh, push to it. So that was their hope. And now they're coming out with something different and it'll be interesting. Or even talk about Audie Cornish, your former colleague, host of All Things Considered, who was never, I mean, the show had a lot of promise and it was a very prominent hire from from NPR, one of the most recognized voices and personalities. And they still haven't figured out what to do with her in the absence of CNN+. Plus. Listen, I think the the last thing you want to do in life is bet against Audie Cornish. She is smart. She is funny. She's experienced and she's tough. And uh, I, I, I'm enormously fond of her uh, and admiring of her. Um, we didn't get the chance to know what, how she would do on CNN Plus and how she'd do as a TV host. Uh, and you've seen her plugged into certain kinds of political analysis. And, you know, she used to cover Capitol Hill. She knows politics very well uh, and has certainly has interviewed all kinds of uh, political newsmakers in her years as host. By the same token, is that 
where her greatest interest lies? Is that where, you know, she can stand out among all of the political figures at CNN? I don't know. I think she tends to want to be more eclectic than that. And my guess is they'll use her in a bunch of different ways. You know, is the best way for CNN ultimately to use Chris Wallace is as not a public affairs host, not a political host? I'm not sure. He really distinguished himself as sort of a tough-minded uh, figure for and fair-minded figure for Fox over the years. Uh, but uh, these are some of the talents that CNN has acquired, and they'd be foolish not to take advantage of them. David, talk to me about the Washington Post's uh, social media travails. I mean, it's been all over the place. Uh, Taylor Lorenz, their young uh, internet uh, correspondent and columnist, has been in the crosshairs of Tucker Carlson. It's kind of borderline bullying. But then you saw a couple of weeks ago, one of their uh, top political correspondents retweeted something that was... Uh, misogynistic, and it was called out by uh, a colleague, Felicia Sanmez, who really wanted to amplify this. And then other colleagues at the Washington Post are trying to either support her or tamp her down. And uh, the story then became Twitter as uh, the perils of Twitter. And guys, stay off Twitter and do your job. Yeah, what's happening at the Washington Post is crazy, and it's off the rails, and it shows you... Uh, starkly different ideas about what's appropriate and what works. And yet it's not that different from what we've seen at the New York Times. I'm sure it could happen at NPR or other major national news organizations. Different places have slightly different cultures. If you talk to Washington Post, you know, this is a place where under Marty Barron, perhaps the most celebrated news editor of his age cohort, they had a policy that said essentially don't be too out there and he fought with the guy, uh, Wes Lowry, who had been something of a protege of his, Baron. Wes Lowry expressed thinking about how journalism work uh, on Twitter repeatedly and in so doing often reflected in the minds of his editors clear indications of what he believed politically and what he thought about major social issues of the day in ways that made them uncomfortable. And you know, Barron was more buttoned up than that. He didn't think that was appropriate. Well, when I when I step back from this, you're de you're definitely feeling the generational kind of uh, uh, fractures and plate tectonics. I mean, millennials hitting up against Gen Xers and Boomers and everybody. Some who are much more taciturn. You know, Dean Baquet hardly ever tweeted, and then you have others, as you're saying, are are kind of very train of thought on Twitter, and they're constantly mindful of their own brand. If you have several hundred thousand followers on Twitter or more than a million dollars, more than in the back of your mind, you must be thinking that this is my parallel brand insurance. If this doesn't work out at a giant masthead, I could just decamp to Substack or Patreon or one of these other direct channels. Right now, you have Taylor Lorenz, who is uh, one of the top digital uh, columnists, I guess she's considered, about uh, life. She broke a lot of stories about TikTok, for example, really understands the way in which social media works. Uh, she came to the post from the New York Times. There are people within the Times who say that you know the newspaper wasn't all that sorry to see her go, but the post picked her up as a big hire. Uh, now Sally Busby is fielding questions. She's the new editor in in chief or executive editor at the Post, uh, she came from the AP, the Associated Press. Similarly, a fairly buttoned-down operation that doesn't like a lot of uh, fractious debate online and in public. Uh, and they're having to decide the degree to which people can talk about journalism publicly, talk about their own institution publicly. Taylor Lorenz tweeted something after one of her stories required a three-part correction and an editor's note, and she made it clear: well, you know, it was her editor's fault uh, at, at heart. Uh, for the way in which things were portrayed, I think particularly in the degree to which she had reached out to people she was writing about and reporting on b before she posted her piece. 
And a number of folks within the Post felt that this was a betrayal of the editor and a sort of a, a shedding of responsibility by the reporter whose byline is on it, and that it was particularly unseemly for her to do that in public rather than uh, t- picking it up with, uh, with editors. The issue that really brought this to the fore in some ways was a tweet that was retweeted by Dave Weigel, an experienced and I think quite talented political reporter. Uh, it was sexist. It was a joke. Uh, and it was, you know, pretty nasty about women without being explicit. And Felicia Sanmez, one of his uh, female colleagues on the national and politics desk, um, said, gosh, isn't it wonderful to be able to work at a workplace like this based, and, and tweeted a, a screen grab of it, basically indicating how horrible she thought it was. He took down the tweet. He apologized. And yet she then got embroiled in tangled up in fights with some of his colleagues as she continued to tweet about the experience of what he had done and and what the criticism she received online in response to what she said. And it became just an ongoing battle ultimately between her and other figures at the Post. Ultimately, the Post fired her. Dave Weigel himself was suspended without pay for a month, but uh, she she was fired. And, you know, yes, the story is about the perils of Twitter, but it's really about, I think, the question of expectations and the way in which new, the interests of news organizations and the way in which particularly younger journalists, although Lorenz is in her late 30s and Felicia Sanmez is in her early 40s, view what's in their own best interest uh, may split apart. There may be a chasm between those two questions. And I think the Post has not resolved this problem. They're, they've issued some new guidelines. I think they're working on larger uh, social media policies per se, uh, as they're hoping to bring a senior standards figure on board to kind of resolve all these kinds of things. But it's going to be very hard for anyone leading an organization, a major news organization that's hundreds of, of journalists working for it in an era after covid and people having to find their own way for two years in the era after the BLM movements that you know rifled and ricocheted through the nation's streets uh, and its corporate boardrooms and its newsrooms alike. I think you're right. There's a lot of fissures and fractures going on there. And I do think that some of these journalists believe that they can construct alternate journalistic careers for themselves if something at the LA Times or the Houston Chronicle or NBC News goes south. But some of it, I think, is more organic than that and less um, conscious than that. And just this doesn't feel right to me. You know, I think that my lived experience matters. And you're hearing news executives now say that that matters. Well, this is how it gets articulated. And so you've got a tension, you know, personally, when you step back, when you step back from all this, David Folkenflik, after all, you are at NPR, National Public Radio. There are so many member stations across the country in, you know, Kansas City, in the Midwest, in the Pacific Northwest. Is this potentially, you know, in a super self-aware moment? Take yourself outside of the Hudson River corridor and Midtown Manhattan and New Jersey. Is this just so much, kind of? you know, blue checkmark navel gazing, that it should kind of rebound back. And you're hearing this inside CNN with new management and Chris Lick, just shut up and cover the news. You know, I don't think of it as just shut up and cover the news, but there's an outlook. If you read my Twitter feed, if you listen to my commentary, you know, I'm not a partisan figure. I don't try to show you what I want you to think, but I can tell you that I, I want you to be equipped with the kind of information that you need to make choices as a citizen and not just as a consumer. That's kind of my bedrock, get out of bed. And I want to find fun and interesting ways to do it and to kind of do coverage that makes me interested in the news myself. And, you know, I think I'm given far more free speech than the average bear. I have 
a hundred and some follower, a hundred and some thousand followers on Twitter. That's far fewer than, you know, big network anchors or Scott Simon or other people like that. But it's still a lot more than, than the average person. You know, when I go on the air to talk on Morning Edition, uh, I'll, or all things considered, I'll reach millions of listeners every single time. That is an extraordinary platform, an extraordinary opportunity. And I think it's more important to be able to do that than to get in fistfights because it feels organic to me. But, you know, remember, you know, I came into the news business before social media. I came into the news business before email. So, you know, for me, I understand what it is to be more at a distance of the public. I try to engage people on Twitter. I will sometimes get into arguments on Twitter, but I try not to get in fights on Twitter. Uh, and certainly, I don't feel the need to dispute my colleagues who I can talk to on Slack or by email or by phone or someday in person. I don't feel that I need to do that on Twitter if I can help it. Like it doesn't seem to me to play a, a constructive role. But I will say that, you know, for somebody like Felicia Sanmez, who has an ongoing lawsuit on appeal against The Washington Post for taking her off stories about sexual harassment because she, she had been uh, sexually, she conveyed an account of her own sexual assault as she cast it from a peer in China who worked for another news organization. You know, she says, look, the news, the newspaper isn't going to stand up for me. And this is part of my lived experience. Why is it that only people who haven't been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed can write about those issues? Uh, why is it that men who have been accused at times of such things can continue to report on them as uh, she illuminated had occurred at the Post with a colleague abroad? You know, these are issues that don't have easy answers to them. And I think that it's not that the hard thinking hasn't occurred. It's that there's probably no one policy that will successfully navigate these waters for news organizations. And these things are going to keep coming up. So for me, you know, it's not just a question of shut up and cover the news because we're now covering the news in so many different ways and often very personalized ways because of the nature of podcasting, of the nature of telling stories online with uh, digital videos, of the nature of reaching people wherever we can find them the way they are. It's more about what values are illuminating us? Are they the same values as before? And if they are the same values as before, are they being translated the same way in an evolving age? Complicated stuff. David Folkenflick, NPR media correspondent. He is the author of Murdoch's World. He is prolific. You can hear him on every NPR program. I remain flattered that you uh, keep coming on my humble podcast, sir. I'm grateful for you, and uh, please keep at it. Thank you, my friend. Uh, a pleasure to be with you, and have me on sometime soon. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, we were talking to NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick about intergenerational tensions within the news biz. I wanted to pivot back to my April 2020 interview with TV newswoman Soledad O'Brien, who found and asserted her true voice and a business model to boot outside the confines of network news. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Soledad O'Brien, a veteran journalist. You recognize her from anchoring at CNN, from NBC News, MSNBC. I think I remember you with some sort of robotic avatar oh in the gosh, late 90s the on MSNBC. Yes, 96 when MSNBC It was like a Max, Max Hedrum type, exactly. Max Hedrum that type was character Leo, where it was... Leo Laporte was the, was the guy. 
But that was a great example. And people example. forget that it was it was conceived as the Microsoft NBC network. The MS is Microsoft, and they Microsoft used to own Slate and everything. It was a different time. It really was. And, you know, it was so funny. People used to say, you know, how much of your direction are you getting from Bill Gates? And I'm like, literally none. We can't get him on the phone. We'd love to get Bill Gates on our show. We cannot get him on our show. Um, but no, you know, it, but that's a really interesting example because I had been working in local news. So at KRON TV, which I mentioned, and when something else came along, it was like, okay, this is weird. And I don't know a lot about technology. I'd done a lot in science and medicine, but I jumped because it felt like an opportunity to grow and build a skill set and try something different. And I got to be me, right? I didn't have to pretend to be, oh, I'm Soledad O'Brien. I know everything about tech. I was like, I'm Soledad O'Brien, relatively smart person. And I don't understand this thing about tech. Can you guys explain it? And I think that that was, again, a turn in my career where people thought I was crazy. Like, why would you leave to go to this thing that no one had ever heard of? Because it was launching. And it just seemed to me like build skills. I have to ask you, where did you get the inception of your courage? I understand that you were a pre-med at, at, at Harvard, Radcliffe, and you decided to leave early to go into TV news? Yeah, well, I, I mean, leave early is a nice way to put it. I kind of dropped out because I decided not to go to med school. My sister and I were taking classes together. She's a surgeon now, and I'm not. And, uh, and part of the reason was, I remember she said to me once, like, you're just not passionate about this. You have to memorize everything. And I used to have a very good memory. And I'll, I'll med, in, in pre-med stuff, it's a lot of it is just committing stuff to memory. And I just remember thinking, like, she's right. I just, I don't really want to understand the science, but I'm pretty good at regurgitating it. And it was a very big crisis of like, oh, God, what am I going to do? My whole life I've been planning to go to med school. And uh, I, I dropped out of school and I started working at a TV station. How did you tell your parents? I don't. Can you go back and fill me in on this? Is yeah. this the mid 80s? Uh, it was 87, 86, probably 86, 87. Yeah. You know, actually, I think they were fine with it because what I told them, I told them that I was going to I didn't want to go to med school. And, and they were fine with that. I think that that. That was never a big issue for them. But they weren't the kind of parents that you could sit on the couch and like eat Cheetos. So in the same breath, I told them that I'd gotten a job working at a TV station. So it wasn't like, I'm going to sit here and try to figure it out. It was much more like, listen, I think I got to figure out what I want to do. It's not going to be med school. I got a job working at a TV station. So it was like, okay, well, you know, that'll be okay. Then you're, you're working and doing something. And I, I knew I was going to go back. And I think they knew I was going to go back. Um, the problem I had at the risk of sounding like I'm bragging on myself was I, I, I was successful. And so I, I didn't really, it was not easy to go back because I kept getting jobs. And again, the early jobs in TV are like fetching coffee, answering phones, running scripts, removing staples from walls. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not operating on people or something, but I, so I never really thought of it as, as bravery or courage to do something. I left a job where a boss made it very clear that he thought I was average for him. And I, not that I thought I was a superstar, but I just have never liked, I never want to be part of a team where everybody's okay with meh. <laughs> just, it's just not inspiring. And I don't like- You're talking about leaving CNN. I'm not. I'm talking about leaving Cron to go to start- Cron. To go to MSNBC, but even- leaving med school, like same thing, or leaving the idea of finishing up to go to med school, 
Like, why would you want to go do a thing that you're clearly not passionate about? I was always very grateful that I identified it kind of early. And really, my sister did for me because we were taking organic chemistry together. Yeah, organic chemistry seems to be the filter where people have that quarter-life crisis and say, what the heck am I doing? I mean, if it doesn't hit you in high school, then it hits you by the, the second or third year of college. But I will say this, that even then in college, the groupthink persists. I mean, a lot of people funnel into law school because they don't know what else to do. A lot of people funnel into investment banking jobs like I did, which was wretched, which was miserable. But what are you supposed to do, right? There's all of this pressure that I, if I could talk to my 21, 22-year-old self and and say, look, I mean, Farzad, you don't have to kill yourself. Um, All of these various beautiful women around the world want to meet you. You shouldn't be holed up in an office, putting pitch books together, working (laughs) under an investment bank. I just tried to crack a joke. I didn't get a laugh anymore. I did laugh. uh, You didn't hear me. No, no, you you cried on my behalf. But then that group (laughs) thing persisted well into my 30s and Soledad until I had my child, my son, I didn't appreciate how fully I had to have more than a modicum of passion when I left every morning to go and do what I did. And that was the turning point for me. So I envy the fact that you had it, what, halfway through Harvard? I didn't. I just knew that I didn't have the passion, actually. I really realized, like, oh, she's right. I just am faking it. And I am a good memorizer. And I can I can give you the structure of every molecule. And that will get me through what I need to get through. But I actually am not interested enough to be able to tell you why this formula is what it is. She could tell you why this formula had to be what it was because she Mm. cared about understanding the formula. I was just like, hey, on this quiz, all you need to know is the formula and stuff some numbers in. And that's the difference between people who are really passionate and understand and, and are scientists, right? And other people who are like, oh, I can get this done. I can do well on this test. So I think knowing what I didn't want to do probably was the first key thing. And then I happened to, in the I went through the, Harvard has a book called The Harvard Guide to Careers, actually, <laughs> they used to. And I went through, I'm like, okay, I can't be an investment banker. That would be a disaster. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I thought maybe advertising, although I wasn't that interested in pitching products. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should try working at a TV station. And so I applied and I got a job, uh, entry level job, but I loved it. I loved it. What did you love about it? And I want to I want to ask you this specifically. You were born Maria de la Soledad Teresa O'Brien, and you took the handle Soledad O'Brien into TV from day one, correct? <laughs> correct, yeah. Yeah. And was there pushback people, yeah. from producers or for yeah. homogeneity? Talk to me about that. No, not from producers ever, because no one cares who, you know, if you're getting someone's coffee. <laughs> like, whatever your name is, go get it. Um, when I started to think about being on No, but camera, when you became on-air talent yeah. or when your byline was, was on the Avatar. Earlier, yeah. early, for my very early job uh, applications, yes, it was a problem. I remember one guy, I think it was in Hartford, and he said, you know, would you change your name? And it was such a weird request because my boss, in fact, her name was Jean Bollocky. And she had changed her name to Jean Blake because that was a very typical conversation, like Bollocky. She was a woman from Minnesota. And so, mm. uh, but I, it was just not even going to happen. I mean, it wasn't, I don't even think, it wasn't even a real conversation. Like it wasn't, they were giving me a job. It was just sort of a question that was posed because he thought Soledad was a difficult name. That was a flashback to my 2020 chat with veteran TV newswoman Soledad O'Brien. You can catch the entire episode, earnestly Soledad O'Brien, on your favorite podcatcher. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. You can follow along on Twitter, Insta, and Facebook. 
and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And additionally, every week, I'm on NPR's Here and Now, as well as MSNBC, and my DMs are always open for you. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you, dear listener. Back with you next week. <laughs>